Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. I just want to say thanks very much for all the iTunes reviews. They've been very helpful, and please keep them coming. As always, you can find us on Twitter at at elucidationspod, and you can check out our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. One other thing I wanted to mention is that since August, we've been doing our hosting through a new startup called Pippa, which is pretty cool. It's actually founded by some former philosophers, and... I have to say, I've been very impressed so far. The service is totally free, provides detailed analytics, makes it very easy for you to migrate from your previous host to them. So all in all, it's been a very positive experience, and it's enabled us to get much more detailed stats on who's listening and when. So if you have a podcast and you're looking for a hosting service, you might check them out. They can be found at pippa.io, P-I-P-P-A dot I-O. All right, thanks. Hello and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Dunan J. Jagannathan. With us today is Paolo Santorio, lecturer in philosophy at the University of Leeds, and he's here to discuss counterfactuals. Hi, Matt. Hi, Dunan J. So a counterfactual statement is a kind of if-then statement, it's, but it's a special kind of if-then statement where the if part is not true. So in other words, it's the kind of thing where you imagine what would have happened if the world had been different. So you're engaging in this kind of like what-if reasoning. So for example, I don't have a sister, but if I had had a sister, she would have had red hair. Maybe that's a counterfactual conditional. Uh, Is that what we're dealing with here? That's roughly right, yes. It's quite hard actually to say what counterfactuals are in a precise way. What you said is right for the great majority of counterfactuals. It's a kind of if-then statement uh, in which the antecedent is not true, and the speakers are actually assuming that it's not true. And normally these conditionals are expressed using would. So it's a kind of if-then-would kind of statement. It can happen that the antecedent is actually true, and it can happen also the speakers do not presume that that antecedent is false. So, for example, a doctor, while examining a patient, can say, well, if the patient had measles, then she would be showing exactly the symptoms. You know, and and then you use that kind of reasoning just to diagnose the fact that the patient does indeed have measles. So the label counterfactual, which is a very uh, common label, is a bit misleading. And it's very hard to say something positive about, you know, the general category of counterfactuals, what they are without just using the fact that there is if-then claims in which would appears. Could we say about that doctor example that maybe what's relevant there is that you don't know whether the patient has measles, like maybe the patient has measles, maybe they don't, and that's what makes it a counterfactual? Definitely you don't know, at least in the ordinary case, but you're, you're also not assuming that it is false, right? And in fact, you, you might be reasoning yourself into believing that indeed the patient does have measles uh, just by using that counterfactual. The doctor wouldn't be very interested in the scenario if the doctor knew that that was false. They wouldn't make that statement, would they? They, Normally they would not. Um, You know, they could say, well, if the patient had measles, she would be showing exactly the symptoms, 
but she's been tested, so it's not measles. But not in the situation I originally gave, yeah. So what does it mean when we make one of these if-then-would counterfactual statements? Right, that's a very good question. And it's a question that philosophers have been thinking about for a while. So here is the first attempt. When you use an if-would statement, you are reaching for some kind of situation that is very similar, though perhaps not quite, the situation that we are in. And you're supposing that uh, you know, the if claim is true, and then you're saying that in that situation, the then claim is also true. So it's a kind of reasoning. It is, in a way, a statement that allows us to reason about situations that are similar, but not quite the same as the situation that we are in. So just to get an example, I'm wearing uh, some pretty heavy shoes right now, and I say, if I was wearing flip-flops right now, I would be cold. So it's a pretty cold day here in Chicago, and it seems true. And what I'm doing somehow, in some way to be better understood, is I'm thinking about some scenario that is similar to the scenario we are in. Uh, so, for example, I'm keeping fixed the fact that it is cold outside. And then I'm thinking, okay, uh, what happens there? Assuming that, you know, there's this difference that I'm wearing flip-flops rather than boots. Well, I'm pretty cold over there. So, basically, you're imagining a situation that's very much like the one that we are in, but you're changing just a, a little bit, just one thing, that instead of wearing these really heavy shoes, you were wearing flip-flops instead. Exactly. And the difficulty is in giving a really satisfactory story about this idea that you can change just one detail and keep all the rest the same. Yeah, I mean, is that possible? Could it be the case that you just changed what shoes you're wearing and every other fact about the actual world would remain the same? Or is that an option? Um, no, probably. But even if it was an option, it's pretty clear that that's not what we do when we think about counterfactuals. So there's this famous example that goes back to uh, philosopher Kit Fine. And that goes, if Nixon had pushed a button, there would have been a nuclear holocaust. So it's a kind of Cold War scenario where you know, Nixon has the possibility of uh, dropping the bomb on the Soviet Union. Now, if you just change the fact that Nixon pushes the button and keep everything else the same, then you, know, you will also hold fixed the fact that, as a matter of fact, there has not been a nuclear holocaust, right? So presumably what you're going to get to is a scenario where somehow or other there's some malfunction pretty early in the circuit that should lead to the bomb being dropped, but that doesn't happen. And that's not the way that we understand the claim. Once we make that supposition, if Nixon had pushed a button, then we're led to a scenario where things down the line are pretty different from you know, the way they actually went. Yeah, it would be weird for somebody to be like, if Nixon had pushed the button, there would have been a nuclear holocaust. And then if I came back and said, oh, no, no, I mean, there would have been a malfunction in the circuit and there wouldn't be a nuclear holocaust. So it would have been just fine. You know, that would not be a plausible exactly. counterfactual to say. Right? Exactly. So that's not the way we reason holding fixed exactly as much as possible, right? We're very happy with changing some things and going with the changes, but we do want to hold fix some things. So for example, when I use my original example about the flip-flops, I held fix the fact that it's cold outside. That is something that did not change. 
So how do we know what things we're supposed to hold fixed and what we are supposed to allow to vary? Right, that's a great question. So there are at least two big views, I think, in the literature. The first big view, which was held by uh, David Lewis, uh, was that we do some sort of temporal rewind. So we go back to the point in time at which, more or less, we have a chance of making the antecedent true. In the case of my example, if I had worn flip-flops, we go back to this morning, where the point at which I choose what shoes to wear, and there we operate some kind of change, and then we run the course of history back and see what happens there. So Lewis doesn't put it exactly this way. In particular, he would not use temporal vocabulary while stating the theory, but that's basically what happens on his view. So that's one view. And the idea there is that we just look at the time dimension and we erase a part and we go back, we operate a change, and then we rerun everything from that point on. So this is the sort of alternate history model of counterfactual reasoning. Right, that's one way to think about it. In a sense, actually, also the other model that I'm going to present is a kind of alternate history. Uh, the difference is in how you change things. And whether you rerun everything or whether you keep certain pieces of the future fixed. So the other model is one that keeps certain pieces of the future fixed. And it does so on the basis of a notion of causation or causal dependence. So the idea there is not that you erase everything that happened after the antecedent and you rerun history, but rather, in the background, you think of the world as being structured in a kind of causal way. And you think that there are causal paths running through the world. And what you do is you take the causal path on which your counterfactual supposition lies, and you erase that particular causal path, and you hold fix the rest. So in a way, in the, on the first picture, we just erase all the future after the antecedent. On the second picture, we actually hold fix a lot of the future, but we just change whatever led causally to the antecedent being false. We go back on that path, we make the antecedent true, and then we rerun things, holding fixed a number of other things that happened in the future. So this sounds very abstract. So maybe I can give you an example to show you how the two theories would differ. So suppose that I offer you a bet on a coin toss. I offer you a bet on tails, and you refuse. And then I toss the coin, and lo and behold, it does land tails. And I say, well, if you had bet, you would have won. Now, suppose that coin tosses are really this kind of indeterministic processes, and there's no fact of the matter about how the coin is going to land before I toss it, at least before I start the whole tossing operation. Then, in this kind of case, the two views make a different prediction. So notice, the supposition here is if you had taken the bet, but I offered you the bet before I tossed the coin. So if we erase everything from then on, what's going to happen is that we're actually going to erase also the outcome of the coin toss. And so it's not clear that it's true to say, well, if you had taken the bet, then you would have won. By contrast, on the causal picture, what happens is that we go back 
on the causal path that led you to you deciding of accepting or not accepting the bet. But presumably that causal path was independent of how the coin actually landed, right? There's no connection between you deciding to take the bet or not and the coin landing heads or tails. So we can hold fixed on this second theory, the fact that the coin landed as it actually did land. So notice we can do this even though, again, the landing of the coin is after you taking the bet. I kind of rigged things a bit uh, because I presented an example that supports one theory against the other. It is my favorite theory. This causal theory, I think, is the correct way to go. And of course, there are a lot of things to say, but this is just an example that shows how these kind of two views, purely temporal view and the causal view, might come apart. So we hold the outcome fixed, namely we hold that in the future it lands tails fixed, and we go back and we just changed whether I took the bet. And then it's guaranteed that I win the bet if we hold the fact that it landed tails fixed. So this causal mechanism view seems to make the right prediction about that sentence, because intuitively we want to say that's true. Right, that is correct. I mean, let me say there are a lot of maneuvers that the temporal theorist can make in order to rescue the view. But I think this is a kind of crisp example that gives you a reason at least to be interested in the idea that the notion of causal dependence has some bearing on the way we think about counterfactual situations. So the interesting thing about that example is that you're taking the bet is independent of the outcome, as you mentioned. That's why it works that way. Yes. What about an example where the thing you're supposing, what if that happened, does have a bearing on the outcome? Right. That will make a difference. So you have to set things up pretty carefully. So it's really in certain kinds of cases that you can see a kind of crisp difference between the views. Because you're right that if somehow the coin toss was affected uh, by my decision to take the bet or not, then the two views might line up in predictions. But notice also that the counterfactual also sounds different in that kind of case. So suppose that the agreement that we have is that if you take the bet, then you're going to be the one tossing the coin. You don't take the bet, I toss the coin, and I try to say, oh, if you had taken the bet, then you would have won. Then you can respond, well, that's not clear at all, because, you know, you toss the coin now, but if I had taken the bet, then you would have given the coin to me, and I would have tossed it, and who knows how it would have landed. Maybe it would have been the same. Maybe it would have been the same, maybe not. Or, I mean, I was thinking of just like a really sort of obviously true example, like, if an asteroid had destroyed the Earth 2,000 years ago, Barack Obama would never have been born. seems like maybe both views would predict that to be true. Oh, that's correct. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So we've talked about how one of the things that we might use counterfactual statements for is reasoning about them. And something that philosophers and logicians care a lot about is whether there are systematic patterns in our forms of reasoning. So are there kinds of systematicity that we see with counterfactuals? Yes, there are. And in fact, a lot of the great work that has been done about counterfactuals just consists in trying to figure out what the good reasoning and what the bad reasoning is with counterfactuals. So actually, modern theories of counterfactuals came out of the observation that a lot of reasoning that intuitively you might think should be good reasoning turns out to be bad reasoning with counterfactuals. So here is one famous example. I can say, if John went to the party, then the party 
would be more fun. And then I can add, if John and Mary went to the party, then the party would not be more fun. And I can say these two things without contradicting myself. You can imagine a scenario where both are true. So John is this fun guy, and you know he always livens up the party, but Mary really dislikes John, and whenever John and Mary are around, they always end up bickering. And John also say, cannot stand Mary, or something of that sort. So this shows that if you make a supposition, so in this case, the supposition that John goes to the party, and then if you add something to that supposition, then you don't necessarily preserve what you could infer from the first supposition alone. It's like we're imagining two totally different scenarios. Exactly. There's one where it's just John at the party and everyone else, and then there's this other scenario where John's there, but then we also know that Mary's there. Exactly. So adding extra elements to the supposition might actually take you somewhere completely different from the kind of scenario that you first reached. And so for this reason we can see that there's this kind of reasoning, philosophers call it strengthening the antecedent, because you add information to the antecedent. That's not good reasoning. So that's not something that allows you to preserve truth. If you make a supposition, then you observe that something holds in that scenario, then add extra information to the supposition, then you cannot be sure anymore that uh, the same thing holds. So this is an example of bad reasoning with counterfactuals. So the bad reasoning would be if I add the information that Mary comes to the party, but I'm still convinced it's going to be fun. That would be the mistake. Exactly. It's reasoning of the form, if A, then C, hence, if A and B, then C, where you add information to a counterfactual antecedent and hold fixed the consequent. Yeah, an example I sometimes use here is like, you can't conclude on the basis of if I put sugar in my coffee, it would have tasted good, uh-huh. that if I would put sugar and diesel oil in my coffee, it would have tasted good. Indeed. Yes, that's a good one. That's empirically provable. <laughs> yes. Now, but both of the views we talked about would predict, I think, that strengthening the antecedent doesn't work, right? Yes. So we're on a different kind of territory here. We are on figuring out the logic. And the logic is... A lot of logic is shared. And in fact, I think the standard view is that pretty much the logic of counterfactuals, up to some details, is pretty much figured out at this point. So that's something we can work out pretty well without worrying exactly about how to think about situations and how they differ from each other in the way that the temporal theory and the causal theory disagree. Yeah, according to the standard view, yes. There are basically independent questions about the reasoning and about the understanding of this minimal situations. Not according to everybody, and actually I'm pretty much on the kind of heresy side here. I would say that the standard view is that the logic and the notion of a minimal situation can be figured out independently. Okay, so we have strengthened the antecedent as an example of bad counterfactual reasoning. What would be an example of good reasoning with a counterfactual statement? Good. So... Here are two examples that I think are pretty uncontroversial. The first is putting together information that you find in different consequence, holding fixed the antecedent. So if I say, if John went to the party, Mary would come, and also, if John went to the party, then Jane would come, then I can conclude from this too, well, if John went to the party, then both Mary and Jane would come. 
So this seems like good reasoning. This is a pattern of reasoning that is called agglomeration. It says, you know, you can just put together consequence if you have the same antecedent, the same if clause. And pretty much, actually, every account that I can think of of counterfactuals uh, in philosophy, even the wild heresies, will stick to this. So moving to something that is a bit more controversial, but still pretty safe, I think that one form of reasoning that people agree is good is the following. Suppose that I tell you, if I went to Chicago, I would have fun. And I also tell you, moreover, if I went to New York, I would have fun. Then I can conclude, if I went to Chicago or New York, I would have fun. So if you have two antecedents that lead you to the same consequence, then I can put them together with or by forming the disjunction, and I can still get a true counterfactual. So this is something that there is a wide agreement on. And it's important to notice this because this allows us to give a kind of systematic account of how you can reason with counterfactual. It allows us to give a logic, basically. And it allows us to see that there is some kind of structure that we use when we make these suppositions. Uh, And it's not just that we are picking one situation here and one situation there at random. Some people actually believe that it's really random. Recently, people have come up with this view, but according to the standard view, there is actually some structure, and it is that you see it by looking at these kinds of patterns of reasoning. Yeah, I mean, that seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because, I mean, like, historians, you know, will often debate about, you know, if if Hitler had won World War II, blah, blah, blah would have happened. Like, this is something that, like, at an everyday level, we actually feel like we can debate about. And if it's just randomly talking about situations with no rhyme or reason... It's not clear that that practice makes sense, right? Yeah, I think that's a potential problem for that view. If you think that there's no real system to where a counterfactual supposition leads you, then it's not very clear how we can have all this knowledge about counterfactuals uh, that we seem to have. Because we do indeed seem to be knowledgeable about a number of counterfactuals. Like, for example, the one that you used before, earlier on, if an asteroid had hit, had hit the Earth 2,000 years ago, Barack Obama would have never been born. That seems to be right. And one question for the less systematic account is exactly how do you explain the fact that we know these claims? So getting into the territory of uh, perhaps a little bit more new or maybe even controversial inference patterns associated with counterfactuals, you've discussed this interesting case of the love triangle in some of your work. Uh, how does that case go? Right. So it starts like this. Suppose that there are these three people, Andy, Billy, and Charlie, and they're in a love triangle in this sense. Billy really likes Andy and really wants to avoid Charlie. Charlie really likes Billy, but really wants to avoid Andy. And Andy really likes Charlie, but really wants to avoid Billy, right? So they're very unlucky. Each of them likes the one that wants to avoid them, right? Now, suppose that there is this party, and everybody's invited, but for various reasons, they end up not going. None of them ends up going. They almost go. Each of them almost goes, but they don't go. And suppose, moreover, that an occasion to spend time with the one they like and without the nasty suitor, for each of them, would have been sufficient reason for them to go to the party. Then I can make the supposition, well, suppose that, for example, Andy had been at the party. 
I can ask you, well, would it have been the case that Billy would have been at the party? Now, what's your answer? That seems right, because Billy loves Andy. So if Andy had gone, then Billy would have wanted to be there to be with Andy. So, okay, yeah, I think that's true. So people tend to have, not everybody, this is a kind of controversial case, but people tend to have the intuition, okay, this sounds right. And I suppose that I ask you, well, if Andy had gone, then Charlie would have gone. Now, Charlie hates Andy. So following similar reasoning to the one that you explained, most people seem to think, well, in this case, you know, this counterfactual is false. Because Charlie already did not go. And Andy going gives him, in a way, a further reason to stay away from the party. Absolutely. So we have, if Andy had gone, then Billy would have gone. That's true. That seems true. And if Andy had gone, then Charlie would have gone. Then that doesn't seem true. That seems false. And then we can generalize to the other cases with suppositions about Billy going to the party and Charlie going to the party. And we get that the following three sound right. If Andy had gone to the party, then Billy would have gone to the party. If Billy had gone to the party, then Charlie would have gone to the party. And if Charlie had gone to the party, then Andy would have gone to the party. When we're just thinking about the love interest and the lover, when we take them two by two, then whenever the interest goes, the other person will go. Right, exactly. So these three seem to be correct. And if you switch around antecedent and consequent, the if and the then clause, then those counterfactuals seem false. And now this actually turns out is a problem, essentially for any theory that has a standard logic. And the reason is that whenever you have something in the form if A, B, if B, C, and if C, A, then standard logics for counterfactuals always entail if A, C. So if three of the counterfactuals are true, then the other three also have to be true. So this on standard theories of counterfactuals, there is a way of working out causal relations and dependence relations into the meaning of counterfactuals in a way that actually you can get what seem to be the intuitive predictions. This comes not really from work in philosophy, but work that computer scientists and logicians uh, have done, a kind of more formal tradition of work, in particular work that tries to give models of causation and how causal dependence works. It turns out that you actually can give a theory of counterfactuals that allows for these kinds of logical failures. So what I've just explained is a kind of logical failure. Uh, These three conditionals do not entail these three other conditionals. So part of what I'm doing in my work is trying to explore how we could build uh, semantics for counterfactuals that makes room for a notion of causation and, you know, generates a different kind of logic. And so, you know, tells us that reasoning with counterfactuals works in a bit of a different way with respect to uh, what philosophers have been thinking so far. Okay, right. So we imagine this string of three counterfactual statements. If Andy had gone to the party, Billy wouldn't have been to the party. If Billy had gone to the party, then Charlie would have been to the party. And if Charlie had gone to the party, then Andy would have been to the party. Those all seem true. But if we flip them and we get the resulting three statements, if Billy had gone to the party, Andy would have gone to the party. If Andy had gone to the party, Charlie would have been to the party. And if Charlie had gone to the party, Billy would have gone to the party. 
those sort of reverse statements, intuitively those are false because, look, Charlie hates Andy, which means that if Andy had gone to the party, Charlie would have been like, I'm not going to that party. I hate Andy, right? And so if Andy had gone to the party, Charlie would have gone to the party. It has to be false because Charlie hates Andy. So if these intuitions are correct, then the sort of uh, circle of conditionals going in the one direction has to be true. But then the circle of conditionals going around the loop in the other direction has to be false. But currently existing logics for conditionals, it turns out you can kind of like mathematically prove that all six conditional statements have to be true. Yes, that is correct. And so the idea is that we need to add something. We need to change something. And it turns out that thinking of these things in terms of causation and, you know, of contrafactual suppositions in terms of going back in a causal structure and making a change, like if you build this kind of maneuver into the logic, then actually it can help because it can give you, basically can produce a more flexible logic. So it can produce something that uh, allows you to make room for these kind of failures of reasoning. Okay, so the approach you favor involves taking into account causal relations between things. Like, so if we go back to the coin flip example, like the fact that there was no causal relation between my decision to take the bet and the outcome that it landed tails, that played an important role in whether the counterfactual is true. You want to have a framework for analyzing the meaning of counterfactuals that takes relations like this into account. So how does that work? Yeah, so the basic idea is that when you make a supposition you, as it were, forget about all the causal paths that might have brought that about. So if I suppose that Andy went to the party, then I forget about all the causal factors that might have brought about Andy going to the party. But rather, what I do is just I observe what flows in terms of causal effects from Andy going to the party. So as it happens... If I suppose that Andy goes to the party, then you know, that has a causal effect on Billy deciding to go and Charlie, well, still deciding not to go, maybe with a further reason. But now if I change the supposition, then something different happens. In this case, suppose that I suppose that Billy goes to the party. Then here I don't have to worry about what brought Billy to the party. What I do is just observe what flows from there causally. In this case, what happens is that, well, Charlie is going to go to the party as well because he wants to be with Billy, and Andy's not going to go because Andy doesn't care about being with Billy. So changing the supposition alters the relations of causal dependence that I consider from time to time. And so the three different suppositions, Andy going to the party, Billy going to the party, and Charlie going to the party, lead me to consider three different scenarios in which essentially there are slightly different causal situations happening. And so this is why we end up having the intuitions that we have, if those are indeed the right intuitions. So with this kind of model, we can show how the forward loop works, but the backward loop is prevented from being true. Exactly. How we get just the three counterfactuals that we think intuitively are right how we get those to be right on the theory. Exactly. That is exactly right. A nickname you give for your approach to this is interventionist. And maybe an idea behind the interventionist approach to counterfactuals is that, you know, you suppose what if the if part were true? 
what you're doing when you suppose what if the if part were true is you're just bracketing out any consideration of what how that could have happened and it's just it's like a deus ex machina or something and then given that inexplicable deus ex machina you see what what would have to happen or something exactly yes so the label interventionist comes not from me but from a long tradition of work uh, in computer science and also in philosophy in philosophy of science that has tried to give these models of causation and the idea of an intervention is in intuitive terms, just a manipulation from the outside. So a change that you make to the causal structure of the world to bring something about without assuming that something else must have brought about that change. So you don't worry about upstream changes to your model of the world, but you just move to a different model, as it were, and then just observe what flows downstream from the kind of change that you made. What's the broader significance of this kind of theory of counterfactual reasoning? Is there any? Good. That's a good question. Well, here is one thing that immediately comes to mind, and that is which theory of counterfactuals is going to be right will have effects on whether and in what way we can give an informative account of causation. So some philosophers, and in particular, for example, David Lewis, thought that in order to understand causation, we have to look at counterfactuals. And importantly, his analysis of counterfactuals did not appeal to a notion of causation. So he was one of the temporal theorists. If the kind of view of counterfactuals that I want to defend is correct, then actually uh, it turns out that this kind of direction of explanation is not really viable. Because you know we cannot understand causation in terms of Counterfactuals, because in order to understand counterfactuals, we have to appeal to a notion of, well, causal dependence again. Of course, you might think that some explanation of this sort will still be informative, but the informativeness will be reduced, and it's not what people in the other line of thinking were looking for, something like a completely reductive analysis. So I think this really has, uh, looking at the logic of counterfactuals and what counts as good reasoning with counterfactuals really has a strong impact on our theories of causation, how we can understand causation. Paolo Santorio, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Listening.